Hello, it's Gobstopper episode two, and I'm joined today by Jill Garrett. Hello. Hi, and I'm Catherine Williamson. We are going to be tackling the subject of strengths and talents today. But before we do that, we're going to do a bit of I wish I'd said in the previous one, or if there's anything we left unsaid that we would like to correct because we did our first podcast around resilience. So Jill, have you got anything that you would like to update, having listened to it several times like me? Yeah, I I think the one thing I'd want to add is that very little at the moment is written about mental resilience. And um, I think increasingly with people working from home, it can be really hard for people to focus and to stay in the meeting, particularly those online meetings. Um, I've certainly been in those sorts of meetings where the camera's off, there's not a very tight agenda, and it's really hard to stay focused, and the temptation is to do an email, a WhatsApp message comes in. And I know, and everyone else knows, that if we were in the same room, and if the camera was on, that probably isn't what we'd be doing. We'd actually be in the meeting, we'd be paying attention. Uh, we'd be too proud to be seen to be getting on with our emails. So how do you remain focused? Because you're on um, virtual meetings mm. um, hour after hour after hour, aren't you? Well, I take a lot of notes. So anyone that I coach virtually will always get notes from me. So that really helps me to focus. But when it's not a coaching session, when it's a meeting as opposed to a coaching session, um, two things have really helped me. One is taking notes. The other, and I feel in good company saying this, is that I actually find that knitting helps. I felt, I've just finished reading the Michelle Obama new book, mm. um, and she Christmas. talks about yeah, she talks about how her knitting helps her, and and for for her, it's it gives her a sense of control. For me, it's something that I can focus on um, that just keeps me paying attention in the meeting and stops me from the temptation to do emails or other things. In that same situation, when I'm confronted with a number of people with no cameras on, it undermines me in the time trying to second guess why are those cameras switched off. And of course, the world stops and starts and finishes with me, Jill, so it's got to be about me. So it sort of erodes me a bit, wondering, are they all right? What's going on? And um, so I find that... Um, the distraction element of not knowing quite why people aren't playing focus and that critical part of me thinks of why aren't they there why aren't they there none of which is going to help us to get the best out of those meetings isn't it so I used the quote in the last podcast the famous one at church which was you can train a turkey to climb a tree but why not hire a squirrel instead and in life, if you've had a, a job where you are said squirrel going up said tr tree and it's absolutely effortless, it's wonderful. You don't tend to agonise about it. But those of us that have actually been that turkey or worse still a tortoise trying to get up said tree do find that a very different experience. And that's a segue into our subject today, isn't it, Jill? Mm -hmm. So we're going to cover the subjects of strengths and we're going to talk about those as opposed to talents. So, Jill, give us a bit of your background that gives you the platform or the insights to really be enthused and want to sort of um, put so much focus and energy around the subject of talent and strengths? Well, probably about 40 years ago now, I was a secondary school head teacher, which was a job I loved, actually. 
And um, I'd become a secondary school head, not so that children could pass exams, but so that we could help every child to make the most of who they they are. Um, And to me, it was really important that every child achieve their potential. And um, the school that I was head of in the north of England was a pilot school across the UK. Um, I think there were five of us who had what we call positive reporting, where you had to say at least three good things about a child before you could say something critical. And it always seemed to me that if we could help children to notice what they were good at and to do that from a young age, then they'd have much more confidence in their ability. And I I left education well, young people's education in the 1990s, went to work at the Gallup organisation, famous for its emphasis on strength, which I loved. Um, And really since the beginning of this century, I've I've been in different forms of consultancy, really looking at strengths-based leadership. And there's just so much research that shows that people just get better and better by focusing on strengths and just being satisfied with bringing the things that they're less good at up to a level of competence so that it's acceptable, um, but they're never going to excel there. So minimising the need to draw on any areas of of weakness, um, but building more and more on, on, on those natural areas of strength. Well, I remember we had um, some choices about um, one of my kids' subjects and I think there was a potential for an A, a B, a a C and an E. And I'm pretty certain we had a conversation. You said, forget the E. You'll only ever get an E to a D. Put the focus, if you're going to get any tuition or you want to, get that B to an A or that A to an A star. And that's what we're talking about, isn't it, really? Mm, It is. Making peace with um, getting to a certain standard but really putting your energy where you're most likely to Absolutely. excel. Yeah. So what would you say we're working to in terms of a sort of a definition? When we we talk about strengths, what are we talking about? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion about the word strength. I think we, we tend to think that strength is always good. Um, but strong tea and strong coffee isn't necessarily good. It's just strong. And my own experience with my daughter probably with me, yeah, actually with me as well, is that when I look at school reports, they commented on my strengths, but not in a positive way. So I've got a really good memory for facts. And I remember a history teacher, and I did well in history, actually, writing that sometimes I just went into too much detail because there was a mass of, of evidence and data and information in my essays and I think they sometimes struggled to see the wood from the trees. And Laura is someone who now um, can talk. She's she's had audiences of 15,000. But if you look on her school report when she was five, it talked about the fact that she was a very sociable child, but she just talked too much <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and so I think because we all think we're normal, we often don't understand that that these are dominant things for us and they're, they're our strength. Strength and dominant is really the same thing. 
Yes, I remember you say it's the it's the thing that makes us abnormal. Yeah, it's what's not normal about, <laughs> about us because by definition, strengths aren't normal. Now, I referenced the uh, the first time I met you and you talked about the you did the sermon on strengths and you told this story, and it was about a little bunny rabbit that went to school and excelled at hopping and was so happy that every day it was hopping class, that little bunny was overjoyed to get to school and then the headmaster insisted the little bunny did swimming and the bunny hated swimming and got so miserable and didn't want to go to school and um, went to see the headmaster and said, please put me back in the hopping class. Please put me back in the hopping class. I loved hopping. And you remember what the headmaster did in that story, Jill? Well, he stopped him hopping altogether and just made him swim more. Yeah. Now, if you roll that on to times in our career, mm. I can look back. There's a book I love, Who Moved My Cheese? I must have handed out loads and loads of uh, copies of it. And I can tell, I think it's Scratch and Scurry, but there's two characters in there that whatever comes along, they get up, they go, and they're off. And that was me in sales. 12 years of never, ever thinking, why was this a difficult job? Everything I was born to be, I loved. And I went off and did it. People would, I know people would go into sales, they loved the car, they loved the salary, but they didn't like the target and they didn't like asking for the order. I just excelled at it. Um, but then I took a job that was really equivalent to that bunny mm. going swimming. And when you are in that place where you absolutely hate what you're doing or you just can't muscle through, it really does hit your mental mm. resilience, doesn't mm. it? Mm. So... When we find ourselves in that place, that's a pretty unavoidable... You're so miserable that you're medicating on Pinot Grigio. You probably aren't, Jill. Oh, but I don't uh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> Gin and tonic later. <laughs> um, but sometimes you can be in that place where it's just not bad enough, where you're sort of bending yourself slightly out of shape, aren't you? Are there some telltale signs? What What's the research say between when people are really where they meant to be versus that sort of middle ground? What What do we know about? Yeah, and I, I think what I'd say is when you're on that middle ground, you can do the job, but it doesn't give you life. Mm. Um, and for me, I, I love my job. I love what I do. I couldn't sell. I can't sell at all. I've been told by one of my biggest clients that I'm the worst salesperson they've ever met. But what I do do, I absolutely love. And and I think when you're in that place of mediocre, it's something you can do, but you're not finding fulfilment and satisfaction. And you can be hitting all the targets, but it's not satisfying. And there's a difference between success in terms of targets and real satisfaction and fulfilment. And when you're in a job that you absolutely love, you'll just feel that that fulfilment it's that i can't think of the name of the film and you'll be able to where the guy runs and he says you know i was made to run and when i run i've got life and it it is that it's just life giving when you're doing what you know you're really good at you're in the flow i desperately want to know that film but i don't i've got forrest gump going up and down no it'll come to me before we finish (laughs) okay so what are the signs, would you say, when it's time to attend? Am I really, really um, operating within the domain of strengths? How would people show up, or in our worlds, when they are really not quite in their groove? What would you experience? What would happen to you? I think under pressure, you'd actually start to get incredibly frustrated. You'd be saying and doing things that 
weren't the right thing to say and do. And um, you'd start to feel that there are other things that you could you could actually do with doing. Mm-hmm. So if you think of yourself during COVID, I think if you hadn't got the chance to meet anyone, that would be... I mean, you're you're great and you can stay at home and you can make people laugh and you're a wonderful cook. But I think you needed to break out at some point. Well, I did um, perfect when we really couldn't move other than that one. How did we ever get confined to one hour of exercise a day? Um, I did um, virtual coffees and, and I met a lot of people through virtual coffees and once I sort of normalised that mm. process I was industrious in terms of making sure I got um, people that I could just have a bit of banter with and connect with going back to the sort of lockdown I remember when I initially moved on from a coaching face-to-face scenario to coaching on screen I was very depleted because I just wasn't getting the cues from people the stuff that I needed to have to know that they were all right. And I had to relearn that. And for a while it threw me. But like everything, when it was a needs to an end, a means to an end, I got an over and adjusted. So if we're talking about, we've got strengths over there. So what are we talking when we talk about the word and we use the word talent then? So to me, a strength is just a dominant neuropathway. It's something that is dominant in me. Um, one of the strengths that neither you nor I have is the ability to be really tidy or a need to be tidy. I've got pride, so if I knew you were coming to see me, I'd tidy up. But it's not a need within me, not like that need to meet people. Or for me, I, I really need to build very deep connections with people. Um, and when when it's a strength... Because I think we think we're normal, because we've never been anyone else, we don't know when we're overdoing it. And so the criticism, like my daughter got, about talking too much, we're not sufficiently sensitive to the fact that this is dominant in us, it's not normal, so perhaps we're overdoing it. And I'm sure we can all think of people, for example, who are very courageous, will stand up and will say what needs to be said in situations where others dare not say it, who sometimes become quite aggressive and could be accused of bullying. But to them, they're not being aggressive, they're Mm. not being bullying. And the difference between a strength and a talent is that a talent is when I, I understand the strength that I've got and I've become aware of it. It's that self-awareness that is the, the root of all emotional intelligence. And I've learned how to manage it so that it actually becomes something that's good for me to use, but it's also good for other people so I can have a positive impact on others and on a situation through managing my strengths so that they don't manage me. So strengths can often manage us. Talents are when we've learnt to manage those strengths to to have positive impact. So it's living life much more intentionally, Mm -hmm. isn't it, about... um, Mm -hmm. uh, It's that self-awareness piece, isn't it? Know thyself. And if I look through uh, uh, my life and my career and my friendship groups, um, the word to has followed me, T-O-O. Too loud, too noisy, too gregarious, too chatty, too emotional. I've been a two o o girl. I, you know, um, at nearly a hundred percent on Myers Briggs, and uh, you know, a hundred percent yellow on them insights. I'm, you know, I'm extremely gregarious. 
And it took me genuinely, Jill, four years training to be a psychotherapist, which I'm not, of going to that course one weekend a month and genuinely dreading it. But it took me four years to learn to listen. Because up to that point, certainly in sales, I transmitted. And I was like a gawping fish on that class, uh, in that place because I, it was so different from the world of sales to be working around psychotherapists and psychiatrists. And it was a very different world. And I went from totally chatty to almost silent. Because, well, I just didn't know where I, I, I lived because I went from, you know, completely over from one end, end of the spectrum in terms to the other till I found a way of literally being able to listen and actively listen. And it took me that long to learn that skill set. So to be extremely intentioned around being a good listener. Mm. And and I think what I'd say is that we know when we have a strength because we never went on a course to learn it. It's something that we can't help but do that fulfills a need. Mm. And we know that we're overdoing it because we get feedback from others and sometimes it will be the school report, mm -hmm. sometimes it's the parent, sometimes it's someone who cares a lot about us enough to actually say, but sometimes it's other people who don't care a lot about us actually giving us feedback that we perhaps rather not hear, but that's a gift. Yeah, and I, and I think that's one of the reasons why very often as people get older, they're much more temperate, you know, they're much calmer, much more patient, because they've learnt how to manage themselves better. It's it's an emotional maturity, uh, and they've had, I've, you know, you hear people say they've they've had the points knocked off them. Yeah, they've had the edges. Okay, yeah, that's yes, it. Yeah, and stars have points. Mm. Um, and in the early years, we see a lot of stars who have points and have to learn how to manage that. So I'm not someone who wants people who are balanced and well-rounded. You know, I don't know anyone great, really, who's balanced and well-rounded. But people who, who are successful in work and in life, and I think, for me, it's more important to be successful in life, of which work is a, is a part, mm -hmm. are people who've learned how to live with who they are and how to manage who they are. Um, and I think when you described, I've learned to do this... I think what I'd want to suggest is that all of us can learn things, but we know the difference between learned behaviour and natural behaviour. And I think it's easier to learn to be intentional about managing our strengths than it is to learn to do things that we're not very good at at all. Mm. So I'll give you a for instance. Um, quite a lot of the work that I do is with with senior managers or leaders and often when people get into that role they're, they're people who've been promoted because they're very responsible, they're very conscientious, people know they can trust them, they've got really high standards and they get into those roles and they find it impossible to delegate um, and it's helping them to understand it's almost reframing it so that they begin to understand that their responsibility now is not to do the doing, mm. but it's actually to teach other people to do the doing. And and if you really have to, no one would want to be coached by me after this, but if you really have to, sometimes it's about saying you are being irresponsible by doing the doing. You're not being paid to do that. You're being paid to bring people up to that level mm. where they can do the doing 
to the right standard and that's what you're being paid to do. It's classically you're doing the job right when you've got your a point to the a place a team to the point where they no longer need you. That's exactly it? right. Yeah. I remember a coaching assignment and it was a lady a long time ago who'd got a dream job in a foreign country and she was devastated when she didn't get it and the reason that was cited was why she didn't get it was her team was so centrally dependent upon her mm. to shift her out of that um, team would have caused such disruption to the individuals and um, to the organisation that she was trapped. And that was the moment when she decided that she needed to do something mm. about dropping down the responsibility and getting people up to a standard yeah. that would free her. Yeah. But yet, no, that was a very, I remember it so clearly, it was such a painful moment for her. Mm. I think the other thing I'd say, and you've heard me say this before, if we don't measure what we value, we start to value what we measure. Um, and very often people have got into those roles because they've been very productive. Mm. And a culture which stresses the importance of succession, of the growth and development of others. Um, you know, one of the things I loved about Gallup was that they did... Um, have some great awards which were based on what was important and I've never worked anywhere else which has a developer of the year award for those people who'd grown and developed other people in their teams and wherever I've gone since I've taken that idea with me because it's been really important for me to have people who grow and develop others because that essentially is the way that we lead we lead when we've got followers and we get followers by growing and developing them. Yes. Um, you mentioned Gallup, and I remember recently, we talked about it, I listened to a podcast by Marcus Buckingham, and he raised something that I thought, I thought I'd understood until he said it. And what he said was, sometimes we end up doing jobs that we're particularly good at doing, and other people give us them because we're good at doing them. But the actual act of doing them weakens us. It's not that it's a weakness, but the weakening because we have to work so hard to get it over the line. And I, I think if I'm brutally honest in times with the people-pleasing personality, I found myself in a situation, and plus I'm you know, a natural saleswoman, I can sell myself into things and then I'm stuck with having to d d deliver on it. When I've had to really do it and put the energy on it I can do it as long as I know it's going to come to an end I pretty much leave all my expenses to one day in the year I watch the pile grow <laughs> thankfully I've got a bookkeeper now that's taking it away from me but once upon a time I used to have it there waiting it used to make me feel sick anticipating it and then I'd have a day of not speaking to anybody of just getting my head down and getting them done and by the end of it I'd been so introverted I almost couldn't speak and then I'd have another year but now I've got, any, I've got a responsibility to get my accounts right, but somebody else will get energy out of sorting those yeah. out. And it weakened me to do it. And I think sometimes it's that brutal recognition of what are you currently doing, if you're mm. being honest. You're getting rec recognition for, you're getting validation for, you might feel that you're getting, you're getting your pay. But actually, when you look at it, the effort taken to marshal yourself to do it mm. is actually very depleting. Mm. No, I, and I can see that. Although I would say there are elements of every job which are, are draining. You know, I don't enjoy doing admin and I certainly don't enjoy doing invoices, but that's where I find reframing has helped me. So um, we both know lovely Linda mm. who... Um, 
who, who does PA work. And um, Linda always gets the invoices out on a Monday. And so I know that I'm helping Linda to do her job if I make sure that all of my invoices are done and the, all of the expenses are done by Friday afternoon when I sign off. So to me, it's helping my mate Linda. It, I no longer do invoices and expenses. I help Linda on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> and so I think often we can, we can actually jump ourselves through hoops we'd rather not jump through just by reframing it. Now, if that was the whole of my job, I would hate it. Mm. But it does make the hoop that I have to jump through a bit more palatable. And I think once we we can understand more of who we are, and to me, doing the right thing by my friends is always really important. It's back to self-awareness. If I can get that bit right, then I can just reframe it. Mm. The self-awareness piece, we can say it, can't we? We need to be self-aware. It's not that easily achieved, and I... I remember reading about um, it was some Malcolm Stern wrote about it in his book Slaying Dragons with Compassion when he talks about the Buddhists having this, this sangha and a sangha is a, your tribe of people where they're there to hold you to account they're there to hold you to accountability and they care enough about you to say the thing you most want need to hear in a way that the most you can take it without being completely crushed <laughs> and um, that responsibility to actually when you can see somebody's got a black blind spot that's really causing them a problem and managers bottle it and they shift it down the line but when you actually have it pointed out to you the relief of mm. of being able to tattle it and getting on with it and that and, and and we all at some level Jill do know it don't we mm. but sometimes we have to numb ourselves to get mm. through mm. I was um I was talking to a CEO um towards the end of last week and I've been doing some work with the team and um, I'd, I'd, I'd actually had that team working at my home about three weeks ago. And I was just feeding back to him, really, some of the things that I'd observed. And one of the things that, that was very clear to me was that emotionally he was really struggling to say what needed to be said, particularly to one member of the team. And he said, but we've been friends for such a long time. And I was talking to him about the fact that that being a CEO can be quite a lonely job. And he either had to view it a bit like parenthood, that, you know, if you've got a child who's not doing what's right, then actually you're not doing them any favours by not telling them. And you could see that the whole of this team was suffering because he wasn't holding this person to account. Um, or he had to really put some boundaries around that friendship and find someone else with whom he could be completely real. And I think that's often why why CEOs particularly need coaches, because you need one person with whom you can be completely real. Mm. Um, you can just be yourself. And I think very often people look inside the organisation to do that when they're in the top job. And I, because your partner won't understand, they just won't. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they're unlikely to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you almost have to find somewhere where you can just be you. And finding that person is key. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually finding a peer who you can do it with. Um, but a CEO, you don't really have any peers within the organisation. 
and I think that's a big issue for people. Yeah, so there's a, a real genuine trust and commitment that um, you're both in support. And it's the trust bit, isn't it? When yeah. you want to show, you know, we all fear that if you, if I really show you who I am, you'll reject me. Mm. Yeah. I think well, some of it's that. I also think if I really show you who I am, um, it could be used against me, not even rejected, but almost manipulated, if or, that makes sense. Or you might question, why the hell have I got this job? Absolutely, that imposter <laughs> syndrome piece, yeah. yeah. So if we take this transition, uh, so we've got an understanding of, of strengths, haven't we? Something that's dominant, that we can't help doing it, that when we're doing it, we're energised, we're motivated. We don't see it as anything special about ourselves. It's what we do on a Saturday morning without being paid. And it's the things people would spot in us and ask us to do because they can just see that we're really good at it. To transition that into a talent, what's the difference? What When, when does a strength become, become a talent? talent yeah. I think we do it through practice. You know, no one gets to be a great violin player just by being talented. You practice and you practice and you practice and you get some feedback. Um and certainly, I think that the more you can practice and the more you can get objective feedback, the more it encourages you and the more you refine it. And it's about it's about refining that talent. I mean, you and I both do a lot of coaching, and I hope I'm a better coach now than I was five or six years ago. Um, but I'm certainly not at the top of my game because I can always get better. And I think that's true of all of us, isn't it? Well, I can, um, from my own personal experience base, in my early 20s when I was in sales, I got sent off to this sales course in London. I was the only woman on this course. I think I was about 23. And we had to do a um, role play in front of a video camera. Now in, uh, I think it was 87, 88, video cameras were like the things you get on grandstand on a Sunday afternoon. They were great big pieces of kit. You're not... Now we're used to being videoed a lot more on phones. We're much more uh, um, being captured. But then it was a big deal to be videoed. Anyway, I did my, had to go and get my deal, had to close for the order, and I did a good job. And then I got the feedback, and the guy running the call said, uh, right, Catherine, you're going to have to do something about that neck. Well, I, I get the blotchy neck. I said, he said, right, a mate of mine, she works on BA, she could show you how um, you need to learn to tie some scarves and she says she also gets this green cream but it's going to be really distractive to the blokes that you're selling to with that blotchy neck now at that moment I had that blotchy neck for 20 years every time I opened my mouth to speak I'm naturally quite confident I like to you know I didn't have an issue but as soon as I was put in that position I could feel the blotches coming all the way up through my body so it meant when I stood up to speak I was quite giddy I was quite manic and it would take me a while to calm down. So I joined 12 years ago at a local speakers club. First night, I expected to be rejected because I thought I was didn't need it. But boy, between getting out of my chair and going mm. up to the lectern mm. to do a two-minute topic mm. on to mobile phones, it was like the bomb went off. I was like, Duller! I was like a Gatling gun. My arms were going like Magnus Pike. And I went sat down in my chair and just slunk back. Well, I made the decision I was going to tattle it. And so up and down from that lectern, up and down from that lectern. I've done that for 12 years now. And I can genuinely tell you now, if you say there's a thousand people out there, Jill, I can go and get 20 minutes out. Mm. It won't be the most polished performance, but I'll know how to breathe. I'll know how to pace myself. I'll know how to use my voice. I'll know when to introduce some humour. I'll know how to structure it. And that's because for 12 years, 
I've gone backwards and forwards and taken something mm. that I enjoyed doing, that I reconnected with it, but I put some skin technique. Mm. And I can pretty much every time I get up to speak do a pretty decent job. And that's what you're talking about, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. It's absolutely what I'm talking about. And I think the key to this is spotting what it is. I think you probably know that, that there's that piece of research that shows that everyone can do one thing 10,000 times better than any other person or than the normal population rather and knowing what that one thing is is the key to this and I I think for me it's um, if we're thinking about the workplace it's knowing what we're passionate about knowing what we're good at and knowing what can earn us bread mm. and, and if you can find that sweet spot then actually you're a very fortunate person because it never feels to me like I'm going to work. It's fun. Um, and, I, and I've certainly heard other people say that. The late Terry Wogan said, you know, I've not worked for a day in my life. Mm. Um, and you could hear that, couldn't you, from him? Yeah, he was brilliant at it. My yeah. dad said he almost felt he had to apologise for taking money. He was a fantastic teacher. He loved every day of his job. The, tu the students loved him. And he he and he he was right up to he was running philosophy cafes at seventy four in Costa. He was ahead of his time, but I saw that he absolutely loved what he's mm. done. He did, and I've had flits in and out of it. I can life is a retrospective. I can mm. absolutely see when it was brilliant. I can also see when it I just about got through, and there's times when it was just so bad I had to do something mm. about it. So let's give people a bit of practical now. Is there any other research that you'd like to introduce into today or anything we need to give in terms of current thinking? This, there was a very, very good um, article in the November Massachusetts Institute of Technology journal um, where they'd, they'd looked at... Um, at qualities in managers and leaders. And it, I think it's called um, Leadership Character as Competitive Advantage. And they looked at how different traits really stood out in terms of have, helping people to make good decisions and the sorts of traits. There were, there were 10 traits in all that they'd identified. I won't be able to remember them all off the top of my head. I might be able to. But they talked about tra uh, transcendent, people who are very futuristic in their thinking. They talked about um, people who were very conscientious and accountable. They talked about people who were courageous. They talked about people who'd got a sense of justice, people who were humble, people who were... Uh, had a sense of humanity and compassion. So they got all of these different things and they said, you know, this is how this impacts a person's ability to make decisions. And it, and there was something in there that I found fascinating where they said, um, this is what happens when this attribute just isn't there. This is what happens when it's done well. And this is excess vice. They actually called it excess vice. <laughs> and you can kind of see how when leaders are, are kind of in that zone, unless they're getting really good feedback, they can overdo it. But the reality is that none of us are going to have all of that stuff. Um, and one of the things I've found, I, I've actually used that piece of research with a number of the people I coach, and I've encouraged them to identify where they think they're really strong. 
and look at how they can blend it more with some of the things that perhaps they could grow a bit more. Um, so, for example, one of the people I've I've worked with now for a couple of years, very, very accountable, responsible woman, lot of courage, um, strong sense of justice, um, not always as humble as she perhaps needs to be and not with that sense of humanity and compassion. Um, and over time, she's just managed to sort of throw more humility, more compassion in there. And you can see how her leadership has gone from being OK to being really good. And a lot of people have a lot of respect for her now, whereas I think at one time she was seen as be, as verging on bullying. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes just awareness of what we need almost... You, you hear me, you've often heard me say, Catherine, that people are a bit like smoothies, that they've got certain strength, and when they're blended together, we get a smoothie of those strengths. And sometimes it's just throwing a little bit of sweetness into what otherwise could be quite a tart mixture, that it actually makes it not just palatable, but something that, that others can relish. Now, they wouldn't go to that lady primarily if what they wanted was a lot of empathy and understanding. They'd go to her if she was if they wanted a champion. Mm. But being able to blend all of those things that make her courageous and bold and, and just in terms of how she'd stand up for her people, blended with an ability to be a bit more humble, a bit more compassionate about the people she's talking to, has actually made her so much more effective in her leadership. So she's been very intentional. Yeah. She's got it in the forefront of her mind and she's acting upon it. And, of course... When we set about habit changing or doing something different, sometimes we just have to do it through routine or um, determination. But then when we see the impact it has oh. and we see that people flourish, because, Jill, in my experience, so many people are very well motivated and they come to work with the greatest of intentions. They leave the building in the evening with a very different perception and between the intention and the way they execute it and the perception they leave people with, there's this schism, isn't there? Mm. And the work is to get the two things as, opposed, mm. as closely mm. aligned as possible. You know, all those politicians that have preached on moral justice and then been caught having an affair and then the wife's got to be down the bottom of the garden facing the photographers. But, um, you know, journalists pile in between when the spoken, what you say you are and you know and then the way you act and you've got that schism and so the closer you can align in it's that self-awareness piece isn't it it is it is you know that um it, it's been said we judge ourselves by our motives and others judge us by our actions and um i think it helps people to understand one another if they start with the assumption that motives are good yeah um Clearly, you know, not everyone's motives are good, but I genuinely believe that most people's motives are good. But you often get friction in teams because people think, I wouldn't have done it like that. Mm. And just getting to know and understand other people more is almost the next step on the ladder of emotional intelligence. It starts with self-awareness, step one. Step two, self-management. Step three just being aware of other people and step four is managing me so that I can manage my relationship with that other person 
And last time when we talked about resilience, we talked about the vagus nerve. And one of the things that we talked about then was the importance of pausing and breathing deeply. And that that actually begins to release in us that um, that oxytocin, which makes us feel general. Gen, sorry, it makes us feel generously towards other people, and being being curious rather than judgmental about why someone has behaved like that. It just keeps the world collaborative and peaceful, and we need more places that are collaborative and peaceful, and less places that are at war. <laughs> And with that, I say amen. So um, the distance we've covered today, we started our first podcast on resilience about the basics, didn't we? Get hydrated, get to the gym, look after your diet, look after your sleep, and that's your basics. Mm. Then we got people to consider their resiliency factors and to be very much more aware of the things that triggered them. If you are getting all of the basics right and you're doing everything right but you go to a job every day that just demoralises and erodes you, then that's going to hit. Mm, absolutely. It's going to hit your mental yeah. resilience, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So when it, it's sometimes the worst situation to find yourself is when it's just not that bad enough. Yeah. No man's land. So, Jill, as always, I feel um, enriched and <laughs> I love to listen to you I love the anecdotes I think that stuff around the the blending with the sort of the qualities of character and being more intentioned about the way you go and and how you walk in a more humble compassionate path we can all take that one on board and any thoughts for what we're going to thrill them with the next time Jill I just wondered if maybe um where we begin to focus next time is by by thinking about how do I actually help others to grow? How can I spot their strengths and how can I help them to manage themselves better? Mm -hmm. Because the best we know from research that the best managers are actually the best coaches, that young people don't want a boss, they want a coach. And so how can we help people to coach and to spot what people do well and to be able to encourage and grow their team? So maybe that, that should be our next focus. It sounds a very good place to step off today. So thank you, Jill. I'm not going to do it, but I have got my Vulcan live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> Showing off in here. Till the next time, take care, everybody. May you know the joy of flourishing in your talents. And... Um, Take good care.